Hey, this is Mike C. of The Natural Man Podcast. I gotta get this out of the way right off the top. The Natural Man Podcast is intended as general information for educational purposes only and should not be constituted as medical advice or diagnosis of any kind or as a substitute for medical treatment. The information provided in this podcast is not meant to replace the advice of or treatment by any physician. Do not rely upon any information to replace consultations or advice received by qualified health professionals regarding your own specific situation. If you suspect that you have a medical problem, you are urged to seek competent medical help. The Natural Man Podcast and its representatives and agents disclaim any liability for any negative or other medical or other outcomes that may occur as a result of acting on or not acting on any information contained in the podcast. The views and opinions expressed by the host and all guests are their own, and their appearance on this podcast and at the website of the Natural Man Podcast does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent, and does not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of the natural man podcast that's it here we go this is the natural man podcast with mike c welcome to the natural man podcast my name is mike c thanks for joining us today this is a podcast that looks at health wellness and discovers new ways to improve one's vitality and we do that by examining new medical innovations, speaking to experts in their chosen professions. And you can also check us out on Instagram at Natural Man Podcast and stay up to date with us on there. And our guest today is a certified sleep consultant. She is known as the sleep detective, working with clients one-on-one to overcome their sleep issues. She's certified in functional diagnostic nutrition and holistic nutrition from Clayton College of Natural Health. Join me in welcoming Martha Lewis. Martha, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, Mike. Thanks for having me. We're thrilled. Um, So... I want to start just by asking you, how would you define an optimal good night's sleep? That seems to be the million dollar question. And um, I've dealt with sleep issues in my past and I've gotten a million different answers from a million different experts in the know. Um, How do you define a good night's sleep? I define a good night's sleep simply between seven and nine hours. It's going to be different for everyone what their optimal is and waking up feeling rested in the morning so if you wake up rested you're getting quality sleep and enough sleep and so to me that is the easiest and simplest definition of how much sleep you should get okay so i mean if somebody sleeps less than seven hours you know some i know people that sleep five hours and six hours but they're awake they're energized they're functional uh, is that still considered a form of insomnia or or how would you classify that? Well, I see insomnia as wanting to sleep more, but not being able to. And a lot of people are choosing to sleep fewer than seven hours of sleep or getting seven hours of sleep. I guess studies show that getting fewer seven hours of sleep, you know, gives you increased risk of many different chronic diseases. So everything from heart disease to depression, to diabetes, to Alzheimer's. So, so that's where that minimum of seven hours comes from. There has recently been discovered a short sleeper gene that supposedly, you know, less than 1% of the population has where those people actually can get by and be perfectly healthy and function, you know, optimally 
um, at five, six hours of sleep, something like that. But supposedly 90% of people who think they have that gene actually don't and really could use more sleep. Okay. Now, is it normal for our sleep quality to decline as we age? That's something I see a lot in the literature. Um, How true is that? It is normal. And, you know, I think there are a lot of factors to that, but pretty much as we age, the body doesn't function as optimally anymore. It starts breaking down. It's not producing as much melatonin. Um, You know, hormones are decreasing. So there are a lot of of different things that happen when we age that I think contribute to that poor quality of sleep. So does lifestyle play a factor in that, in your opinion? If uh, obviously our, our body's function shows a gradual decline as we age, as you said, um, how does lifestyle play into that? If somebody is taking care of themselves, they're eating a proper diet, they're exercising, they're active, um, getting good nutrition, does that help maintain better sleep or is there still just a natural decline? Well, I can't confirm that with any studies. I mean, I would think that, yes, the more you take care of yourself, the healthier you are, the less your body's going to deteriorate or the less quickly. And so, yeah, you're going to be healthier and be able to sleep better. Okay. Now, what are your thoughts on cognitive behavior therapy for insomnia? Um, Just for our audience, it's a, uh, a strategy of behavior modifications that sort of reinforce one's perceptions and uh, help with anxiety towards issues relating to sleep. Um, What's your take on the behavioral side of that? Is that a valid modality of treatment in your opinion? Definitely. I mean, I actually use a lot of cognitive behavioral therapy principles when I work with people because I think that the mind and our habits are part of the problem. But I think the problem with cognitive behavioral therapy and why it doesn't work all the time is because it doesn't address the physical part of the problem, which is what the other part that I do. So I think that they're both important, that that can definitely help, but that it's not necessarily going to fix it for everyone if there's something going on in their bodies that is causing them to wake up at night. And so what are those, what are some of those things that you look for? Um, I know that, uh, you do diagnostic testing in your uh, in your practice. Uh, tell me about that. Like, what sort of diagnostics do you look at, and how do you how do you trace those physical issues that might be manifesting? Yeah, well, one of the tests I do is a hormone test, and it's a dried urine test. So you're taking five samples throughout 24 hours. So it's looking at your sex hormones, estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, because if those are low or high, that can cause sleep issues. And then it also looks at cortisol and we get that cortisol rhythm throughout a 24 hour period by taking those multiple samples. And so ideally your cortisol is low when you wake up in the morning and then it spikes to its highest point within an hour of waking up and then slowly declines throughout the day. And so for anyone with sleep issues, their cortisol is dysregulated in some way. And then that starts affecting the other steroid hormones like those sex hormones. And then it cascades to other parts of the body as well. So hormones are a big piece of what I'm looking at because they have such an impact on sleep. And and tell me some of the other 
things that you look at. I know that um, you look at food intolerances as part of your diagnostics as well. How does that play into sleep issues and insomnia? Yeah, well, when you are eating foods that you're sensitive to, it creates a lot of or some low-grade inflammation in your body that's happening day and night. And cortisol is, you know, known as our stress hormone, and it's what wakes us up in the morning, keeps us alert throughout the day, and helps us um, deal with stressors. But it's also anti-inflammatory. And so whenever there's inflammation, then your body releases cortisol to deal with that inflammation. And when that's happening at night, that's going to wake you up. So that's how food intolerances can cause insomnia. And I see that in a lot of, in a lot of my clients that, yeah, that they have these intolerances and, you know, kind of the more they have too is a sign of their gut health. So someone with three food sensitivities versus 25 is obviously a big difference. Mm -hmm. And my philosophy too, is not to give these foods up forever, but it's to eliminate them temporarily while we work on healing the gut so that, so that they can then tolerate most foods in the future. Now you brought up gut issues and I find that I find that interesting because I, I encountered I saw something, I think it was on Instagram, a doctor posted it. I can't recall now, but it was one of the one of the um bacteria that you find in probiotics that actually helps with GABA production in the gut. Um I can't remember what that is, and I don't want to put you on the spot if you don't know it. I want to say it's bifidobacterium. But yeah, so it's interesting that you say that because um, I think when people have, I've known a lot of people who have had gut distress and it disrupted their sleep immensely. It's hard to go to sleep when you're bloated and, and, and not feeling well. And so many people have that issue now. So it's interesting that you bring that up. Um, I've also heard the theory that uh, a high protein diet can help with sleep. Have you ever encountered that in any of your practice? Um, as far as diet, I think that each person's diet is very individual. Mm -hmm. And I actually see many people who are low carb and maybe intermittent fasting and aren't eating enough carbs. And it's actually carbs that stimulate insulin, which then stimulates your body to make melatonin. And so without those carbs, especially at dinner time, that can cause some sleep issues. Um, so that's something I'm looking for is, is making sure that people are having enough carbs, but also that they're getting the right balance of those macronutrients of protein, fat, and carbs. That's perfect for them so that they have energy, don't get digestive issues, um, and obviously don't have sleep issues. So yeah, diet's a big part of that. Right. Um, and many people rely on either pharmaceuticals or, or nutraceuticals to get to sleep. In your opinion, should we strive to be in a position where we don't need either of those things in order to get to sleep? Or, you know, is it okay to do a little bit of one for a while? What's your take on that? I mean, you can be taking nutraceuticals, which are, you know, natural um, in theory, but do you think there can be a sort of dependence on any substance that somebody might be taking to get to sleep, whether it's pharmaceutical or natural? What's your, what's your take on that? Yeah. I mean, I, I think ideally we should be able to sleep without taking anything. I mean, 200 years ago, none of this stuff was around and people didn't have as many sleep issues. Of course, what we ate was a lot different and our lifestyle was a lot different. 
So a lot has changed in a very short period of time. But yeah, ideally, if we're digesting everything properly, and then our gut is able to make things like GABA and serotonin and melatonin um, on its own, then we shouldn't be needing to supplement with other things when our body's in perfect balance. Now, that's interesting that you say that um, our lives have changed. Industrialization has, you know, done a lot to put us put our environments in a much different place than it was 200 years ago. What are some of the things that you think have impacted uh, people in today's industrialized society where we're seeing more prevalence in insomnia? Yeah, I mean, I've already mentioned diet, but you know, I do think that's a big part of it. Um, it's only actually the past hundred years that we've been regularly eating refined sugar, refined flour, canned goods, like all of those foods are so new. And so I think we're seeing the impact of now multiple generations in a row eating those foods and how, you know, it's affecting our health in a lot of different ways. So I think food is huge. Um, another part of it is light and blue light especially. So the sun emits blue light, but so do our screens. And again, 200 years ago, I mean, the light bulb wasn't quite invented yet. So, yeah. you know, just having a light and being able to work or be up all hours of the day and night is huge. And then more recently, obviously with all this technology and computers and smartphones that the, you know, the blue screens not only wake us up, but they also make us wired. Even if we feel tired, they just stimulate us a lot. And so that's like the newest um, thing that I would say that is, is affecting our sleep in a lot of different ways. Um, and then of course there's our modern society of how we, you know, now both, you know, both parents are usually working and the kids are in school and we're rushing around and we're worried about money. And, you know, there's, there's just a lot more stressors going on than 100, 200 years ago when things were a lot simpler. So I think it's all those things combined that have gotten us to this, this place where, you know, there's a lot of chronic disease and there's a lot of sleep issues. Definitely. Um, do you think you talked about blue light? Do you think uh, EMF and Wi-Fi and, and those things play a role into the sleep paradigm as well. Um, do you think that these, you know, there, there's a lot of research now suggesting that those frequencies are disruptive to our cellular biology as our cells are electrical, just like the things that the signals floating through the air. Um, what's your take on that? Do you think people should shut off their Wi-Fi at night? Do you think that's a factor in blocking melatonin production or you know, what, what some of the research out there suggests right now? Yeah. I mean, I found the research to be controversial, like a lot of research is, but yeah. like my gut tells me that yes, EMFs can definitely affect sleep. Um, some people are more sensitive than others, but it is something that I recommend to all my clients that we do turn off Wi-Fi at night. We do, um, you know, try, try and get all those EMFs out of the bedroom. And a lot of people see a big improvement from doing that. So yeah, I think it's part it's part of the whole equation for sure. How hard is it to pull people off their electronics? Because I have to tell you, I have to confess, it's been it was a long haul for me. Like I, I I've learned to sort of unplug like an hour before bed, and and as you said, there's a huge change that I've noticed. Um, but we're all addicted to our cell phones. We're all addicted to our tablets and and 
screens uh, all hours of the day and night. How hard is it to pry people away from their electronics based like with your clients? Yeah, I mean, everyone knows that they shouldn't be doing that, right? Like you read that anywhere if you read about sleep, that you shouldn't be on your phone, TV, whatever, before bed. Um, luckily, I mean, most people I work with are very committed to fixing it. Like they're miserable, they're tired, they are just, you know, sick of sick of having sleep issues. And so they're willing to do whatever it takes. And, you know, that's also the benefit of having someone advising this and holding you somewhat accountable. <laughs> Yeah. And, you know, tracking your sleep and seeing how it improves when you make certain changes. So, yeah, most people luckily are pretty compliant. That's good. <laughs> um, now, GABA supplements, do they really work? I, I've read um, conflicting research. There, there's, there's research that suggests that they can't confirm if it penetrates the blood-brain barrier, which is, you know, we need the GABA in our brains to sort of get calm and get relaxed and get to sleep. And if we have low GABA, we're not going to sleep very much or, or sleep very well. Um, what's your take on that? Have you seen success with using GABA as a supplement or should we just try to find natural ways to stimulate it? How do you work with your clients on that? Yeah, I don't usually prescribe or recommend GABA by itself. Mm -hmm. um, again, I think it's very individual as to what's going to help different people. And so that's what I think is so important about the testing I do, because it shows what's going on in the body. It shows what your body is lacking. So then we don't know. So then we do know exactly what to supplement. And it's not that guessing game of, oh, I'll try this and this and this and, and see what works. And it's really hard to pinpoint if anything's helping at all. Um, and then, you know, the supplements I do recommend, like sometimes I do recommend GABA or, you know, formulas with that in there. It's, it's the idea that's for the short term. Well, again, we work on rebuilding that gut because your gut is what should be producing that. So, yeah. So the idea is that eventually, you know, when you're, when you are perfectly healthy and everything is back in balance and you don't need those things anymore. Now, um, Sunlight, that's something that's come up in some of our previous episodes. Uh, we've had some real proponents of sunlight for, for a variety of different reasons. And it's been it's been vilified by um, a lot of people in the medical community for, for a variety of reasons, I think. And I don't understand all of them. But um, do you think sunlight exposure is helpful for sleep? Should we be trying to get AM sunlight when the sun is rising? Should we be looking towards where the sun is? Not looking at the sun, please. Nobody look directly at the sun. But uh, do you think that plays a factor in stimulating melatonin production in the pineal gland? Or what's your take on that? I do, actually. Again, if we go back to 200 years ago. <laughs> yeah. You know, we got sunlight during the day. And when it was dark, we didn't have a lot of light. And so, yeah, that's how we have evolved. Um, light is the main thing that keeps our body clock set. So we have this arbitrary 24-hour day that we've decided on. Most people's body clocks are a little less than that or a little more than that. And so these cues, especially light, but also food and habits, like those also keep your body clock in check so that you stay on that 24-hour um, rhythm. And then it's easier to fall asleep when it's time to fall asleep and wake up when it's time to wake up. 
So I do recommend um, getting morning light. Getting light at noon, there is research that shows that that can set 80% of your body clock. So just wow. 30 minutes at noon, whether that's outside or like I live in Jackson, Wyoming. Today, it's very overcast. There's not sunlight. So then, you know, in those cases, then I recommend, you know, a happy light or a light therapy lamp with 10,000 lux. So yeah, light is definitely it's part of the equation as well. Well, that you t yeah, that was my next question. Um, when you're living somewhere like Seattle, where there's a lot of overcast, um, you recommend artificial light, you're saying? Yeah. And yeah. so how does that work? Is that is that a lamp that has the same amount of, I, I'm sorry, I'm very ignorant on, on the light spectrum, but it, it's it's the same amount of lumens or, or lux that the, the sun shines or how does that work? Can you can you touch on that a little bit? Yeah, I don't know that there's there probably has been a light made that has the same as the sun. I mean, I think the sun is a hundred thousand lux or something, and these the lamps are ten thousand lux. So you do want to find one with at least ten thousand. But again, that has been shown to be enough to to help um, keep your body clock stable. And does it need to just be in the eyes, or should it be on as much skin as possible? How, how do you know how the exposure generally works, or? Yeah, it's mainly in the eyes, those receptors in our eyes that connect with the brain that, yep, that show that there's light. So yeah, it's mainly getting your face. Like the one I have is, you know, this big. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and you say you want to be within a few feet of that for 20 to 30 minutes when you're doing it. Okay. And what, uh, what are, talk about some of the most difficult cases of insomnia that you'd, you've encountered with your clients. We've uh, obviously discuss that there's a variety of different reasons why people have sleep issues. And, uh, you know, it takes a bit of, I, I guess that's why you're the sleep detective, because you have to investigate what's going on. But talk about some of the more difficult uh, cases that you've come up with in your work. Yeah, I mean, some of my most difficult, I would say, are people who really struggle with the mental part of it, with anxiety about sleep, with a lot of stress in their life, and maybe past trauma. So even though I talk a lot about the physical reasons why people can't sleep, because I think that that's not being talked about, and people don't know that there are these, you know, very real things that are going on in your body, chronic stress and the mental part of it plays a huge role, too. And so that can be, um, yeah, that can be difficult for someone who has had those same thoughts for dozens of years and been anxious about sleep for a really long time. It takes some time to unravel that. Um, so those are, yeah, I would say, yeah, those people with, with the mental struggle um, are, are definitely my toughest clients. And I once heard of a, a cluster uh, of monks in Greece who only sleep three hours a night, and apparently they live long, healthy lives. <laughs> I've thought about that for years. Is this humanly possible? Like, can somebody thrive on three hours of sleep per night if they've got everything else lined up right? Or they have a good spiritual life? Like, what's your take on that? Is that can that is that scientifically possible? Because I know how I feel after three hours of sleep. I'm a mess. I'm not, I'm not going to lie. Like, the whole world's ending when I've slept for three hours. Can someone function on that? Like, have you met people that have been able to function on that little sleep? No, I haven't. Well, that's not true. I think, um, I mean, because some of my clients, you know, I'm thinking of one person in particular right now who's 
been struggling for 25 years and some nights he gets three hours and he's, he's like, actually, I, I feel great. I don't usually feel tired until it gets to be like eight o'clock at night. And then I'm ready to collapse, but it's like, I can still function in my work and, you know, be productive and feel okay. But once those night after night, after night of three hours, then that's when things start to deteriorate for him. So yeah, I haven't met these monks. I can't imagine that um, <laughs> that can be good for you. The only thing I can think is, you know, are they sleeping other times in 24 hour period? Are naps part of it? Meditation is, you know, very therapeutic too and, and relaxing. And so, you know, I imagine if these monks are spending a lot of time meditating, that can make up for some of that. Um, but yes, I would say for the average Joe, who's not a monk, <laughs> <laughs> like most of us. Yeah, three hours is not enough. <laughs> um, you mentioned napping. Now, uh, there's cognitive behavior therapists out there that say no naps because it uh, it lowers your, uh, is it sleep drive? Mm -hmm. um, now, I have to say that for me personally, and this is just anecdotal, napping helps me a lot. Like if I do a 10 minute, if I can catch a 10 minute nap somewhere in the middle of the day, I find I sleep better at night. Um, what's your take on napping? Do you think people should nap or not nap? Is it is it individualized? And, and if so, when do you think it's okay for somebody to nap? Yeah, I mean, I do think it's individualized because I think everything is. But for the most part, I do encourage people to take naps, especially if they haven't slept well the night before. Um, because when you don't sleep well, then that stresses your body out even more, you release more cortisol. And so taking some time to, um, to lower that during the day can really help. Now I do recommend capping that nap at no more than 30 minutes. And really it takes about 10 minutes to maybe fall asleep. And then you have about a 20 minute nap where you're only, only going into stage one and stage two sleep. You're not getting into deep sleep. And so, um, and a lot of times you don't even know that you're asleep because those stages are really light and people tend to like 50% of the time if someone wakes you up in stage two sleep, you're going to say that you were awake, but you were actually sleeping. And so I know that this happen happens to me sometimes where I think that I didn't sleep and then I have drool on my pillow <laughs> from a nap. As I know, but I'm like, oh, I guess I did fall asleep because yep. you don't do when you're awake. So yeah. yeah. So I actually do recommend naps and and I think too, that people say, oh, I can't nap. And it feels like this pressure because I never fall asleep. The purpose of a nap isn't necessarily to fall asleep. It's to rest. If you fall asleep, fine. If not, that's fine. I still feel amazing if I haven't slept well and I lie down for 30 minutes. And when I get up, I feel like it's a new day and I just feel so refreshed and alert and you know ready for the next half of my day. And then it doesn't affect my sleep at night. So obviously for some people it can, and those people shouldn't nap if it, if it keeps you awake at night. But for most people, I think that naps, a short nap is a good thing. Have you encountered any uh, withdrawal with any of your clients? I know that, you know, certain withdrawal from medications or, uh, you know, previous substance abuse can be a real factor in sleep issues. And I've, I've spoken to people who have dealt with that firsthand over the years, um, how do you, have you approached that? And if so, how do you approach that? Cause that's sort of a complicated, uh, that's a complicated case sometimes. 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, I definitely work with people while they are getting off medications like sleeping pills, antidepressants, anti-anxiety, things like that. Um, of course, they have to get their doctor's approval. You know, their doctor is going to give them hopefully this wean down plan. Um, and then sometimes I offer a, an alternative one that actually takes it even slower because it can be so mental too. And so I like to start, you know, I don't suggest that people start getting off these things as soon as we start working together. It's like, no, let's work on rebuilding your health first, getting things back in balance, and then we'll start getting off those medications that you don't want to be on. And so, yeah, so with this very slow wean down, usually people don't have many side effects. I've had people just quit cold turkey, deal with what's called rebound insomnia, where sometimes your insomnia gets even worse for a little bit, and then come out of it actually sleeping so much better and them saying, I think that the sleeping pill was a big part of the problem. So, yeah. So, you know, that is doable to get off all these medications. Cause if you think about it, like sleep problems are not from having a deficiency of a sleeping pill, right? <laughs> because things are out of balance. So definitely we work on getting things back in balance so that you don't need those, those medicines. Is it smart to snack before bed? Um, What's your take on that? There's, uh, you know, I uh, I always have a just a temptation to eat something before bed. Um, sometimes I binge. I'm not going to lie. You know, sometimes I eat what I shouldn't eat. I think we all do at times. But is it smart to just not eat after dinner? The last meal is is snacking wise. Does it depend what we snack on? How do you feel about that? Yeah, so I actually recommend a snack before bed to a lot of my clients. So there are two main reasons why people wake up in the night, and it's pathogens in the gut, and it's low blood sugar. And so if your blood sugar drops too low, whenever that happens, your body's stressed, it releases cortisol, and it wakes you up. And so if I can tell from their labs that people have blood sugar issues or from their symptoms, then I do recommend a snack before bed. And it's just a couple hundred calories. It definitely ideally doesn't have sugar. You know, it's a balance of some fat, some protein and some carbohydrates. Um, and that can really help min or help prevent that blood sugar from dropping too low in the night. Do you do any diagnostics for gut related issues? Yeah. One of the tests I do is called a GI map or a gastrointestinal map. And it shows about 75 different things that are living in the gut. So bacteria, if there are parasites, if there's yeast, and the balance of all of those things. So that's a really, that's a really um, important test that I do because a lot of people do have pathogens, whether that's parasite or something like H. pylori is really common in a lot of my clients. Um, or candida is another one. So those creatures are nocturnal. And they're most active at around 3 or 4 a.m. And cause a ton of inflammation and also put a big burden on your liver, which is also active then. And so this is a huge reason or a very common reason why people wake up then. Um, but this test also has other markers that show how well you're digesting food, how strong your immune system is, how much inflammation you have, and how your liver is working. So this one test gives a ton of information as to how lots of different parts of your body are working so that we know what to address. So if somebody has, uh, you know, if somebody comes back with a, a GI map result that 
um, shows a lot of dysbiosis, like a microbial imbalance in the gut, too much candida or pathogens, what have you. Uh, what happens next? What do you do? <laughs> yeah, well, I am required by law, since I'm not a physician, to refer them to their physician. And they can choose to um, to take something for that, like a doctor may or may not prescribe an antibiotic or something like that. Um, or I also give them the option of doing a self-treatment protocol that I recommend that's mainly with herbs. Um, also includes something called a biofilm buster. So these creatures create protective shields around them that's called a biofilm that makes it um, it protects them. It makes it hard for things to come in and, and kill them. And so, you know, having something, taking something to break down that biofilm helps so that then the herbs can get in there and do their job. So yeah, depending on what's going on in the gut is going to be different as to what supplements I recommend and, and what we're going to do about it. Um, but yeah, that's, that's the general idea. Now the candida busting diet, um, sort of that, I don't want to call it low carb, but I know it eliminates gluten and, and wheat and a lot of refined grains and simple sugars. Is that helpful when you find an imbalance of, of candida? Do you, do you believe in that or is it not really helpful? How, how do you feel about the candida, the, the candida diet that's out there? There's variations of it, but it's sort of similar among physicians. Am I right? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I candida definitely thrives on sugar and I'm asking my clients anyway to, to not be having sugar while we are working together, or at least for our initial 90 day protocol, because it's also inflammatory and it feeds these bugs. But what I found with candida is that there's usually a larger infection that is feeding that candida. So if you have a parasite, all their toxic waste actually is what candida eats and, and thrives on. And so I think that this is why so many times people, you know, will do this anti-candida diet for a year and still battle with candida. And it's because there's something bigger going on that just keeps feeding that. And so you've got to address that primary infection first before you'll actually ever um, take care of the candida overgrowth. Do you find cortisol lowering supplements helpful at all? Um, I know, you know, there's ashwagandha, there's rhodiola, phosphatidylserine. Um, I've had stages of high stress seasons in my life where I found those helpful for sleep. Um, do you feel that those are just a band-aid or can those be helpful in sort of over overcoming cortisol imbalance? Should we be looking more sort of under the surface to see why cortisol's elevated? What's your thought on that? Yeah, I mean, exactly what you're saying. I I find with those adaptogenic herbs like ashwagandha, rhodiola, those don't necessarily lower it. They're supposed to help get get things back in balance, help you have a, a healthy response to stress. Um, something like phosphatidylserine does directly lower cortisol. And I think that those should be taken with caution. So, um, you know, the, the hormone test I do shows cortisol. It shows how much you're the adrenals are making, and it also shows how much is available to be used in the body. And sometimes those are very different. Um, cortisol is also can damage tissues and organs. And so if your body's constantly producing too much cortisol or a lot of cortisol to deal with stress, um, then it can damage, it can damage the body. And so then the body will convert it to cortisone 
to protect tissues, and then it's not available to being used. So knowing both of those numbers is really key. Um, I, again, I think, yes, if I see someone's cortisol is very high, especially in the night and at bedtime, then I do recommend um, cortisol lowering supplement, again, temporarily, like we're finding why is the body releasing cortisol then and addressing that um, because, yeah, because we don't want to lower that um, forever. Like your body's releasing that for a reason. It's dealing with inflammation. You want it to have that response. So my goal is always to find out why, get to the root cause. Why is your body releasing cortisol and fix that? Is adrenal fatigue a factor in, in sleep issues? Do you, do you believe that? Yes, but I think it's more complicated than just the adrenals. Um, there's actually the hypothalamus pituitary adrenal axis. And so the hypothalamus, hypothalamus sends, you know, messages to the pituitary, which then sends it to the adrenals to produce cortisol or release cortisol. And so most of the problem is never, it's almost never with the adrenals not making enough cortisol. That is called Addison's disease. And that's actually you know, not very common at all. It's usually the other steps above it that are the problem. And yes, it's all because of stress and it can be chronic emotional stress or it can be these hidden physical stressors that I'm looking for at the lab tests. Um, but yeah, so I think adrenal fatigue is a little bit of a misnomer, but I do think that those symptoms are definitely a sign that things aren't right, that your body isn't handling stress anymore and definitely something to, to figure out. Now, what about thyroid issues? Um, thyroid's another uh, complication when people are trying to sleep, especially if the thyroid is hyper or hypo. Um, do you see a lot of that in your clients? Definitely. Um, thyroid can definitely play a role. I do find that in most cases, it's not actually an issue with the thyroid. I mean, some people do have Hashimoto's and you know autoimmune thyroid disease, but um, usually it's other things that are then causing the thyroid to not be functioning properly. So um, for example, if you have too much cortisol, then that um, inhibits the, the, um, the thyroid uh, producing that hormone and then which makes T4 and then that has to be converted to T3 for the thyroid to use. And you also need a healthy liver for that conversion to happen. About 60% of that happens in the liver. So I usually find that it's other issues um, besides the thyroid itself. And so again, getting to that root cause, you know, finding everything that's out of balance in the body is, is the key a lot of times to, to um, getting over those, those thyroid symptoms as well. Any tips for shift workers? Um, they have a lot of, some of them have a lot of challenges and they're sort of working against I think the the natural clock of the human body and and I mean God bless them they're they're people we need you know doctors working in in the emergency rooms and you know firefighters police um, not everybody can work nine to five um, what do you what are some tips that you have for for shift workers trying to get optimal sleep yeah I mean my number one tip is tough but ideally people would stay on the same schedule all the time. Mm -hmm which I know is hard, you know, like I think of nurses who work three, they might work three 12 hour night shifts in a row and then go home and they want to then get back on, you know, societies and their family schedules. And it's really hard for the body to be constantly going back and forth. Like the more um, consistent you can keep things, the better. 
but otherwise using things like light therapy, like we talked about using, this is when melatonin can be really helpful because it helps regulate our, our circadian rhythm. So yeah, that's when those things can, can really come in handy. Well, um, Martha, I want to thank you for joining us today. Um, how can people find you? Yeah, my website is thecompletesleepsolution.com, and I'm on Facebook and Instagram as Complete Sleep Solution. Okay, great. Well, uh, hopefully if uh, someone wants to look that up, they can, they can find you. Um, thank you for joining us today. We really appreciate you being on this episode. Yeah, thanks for having me. That'll do it for this edition of the Natural Man Podcast. Remember, we're on Instagram, at Natural Man Podcast. Stay up to date with us on there. And thanks again for joining us. Um, until next time, my name is Mike C. Stay healthy. This has been the Natural Man Podcast. Subscribe to our podcast for more episodes. Come on a journey like no other where you will discover many roads that will lead you to a happier, healthier, and more stress-free life. And the beauty is, you don't need any vacation time for this adventure. The journey will come to you. Join Avery Rich on your very own journey into yoga. Along the way, she will demystify yoga poses and guide you into a yoga posture or short sequence, all in less than 15 minutes. You have nothing to lose but stress. The Journey Into Yoga podcast. It's not for people who like yoga. It's for people who don't like yoga. Follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at AveryRich.com. I'm Matt Kundle, host of the Sound Off Podcast, the show about podcast and broadcast. Since 2016, we've been speaking with amazing people who have populated your ears for decades. Legendary broadcasters, research wizards, talent experts, podcasters, voice talent, almost 400 stories, all for free. Subscribe or follow the Sound Off Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at soundoffpodcast.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.